Welcome to the Recovery Edge podcast. My name is Alfredo and I'm an alcoholic. And today I am joined by my co-host and wife, Kayla, of course. Hello, friends. And we are joined by our friend, Kelly. Kelly. Hello, everybody. My name is Kelly. I am an alcoholic. Kelly, where's your home group and when's your sober date? Home, grow, home group is the Anoco uh, Pathfinders. And my sobriety birth date is April 20th of 1987. And one thing I would like to tell you both is I get into my story. I would like to talk a little bit more about that sobriety birthday. Thank you. Yeah, of course. I've met you, I think, I probably met you at the uh, New Hope meeting in, in Firestone. That's correct. I'm guessing, but we both have some common friends. Yes. Um, how many years is 1987 now? 34-something. 34, 34 years and counting. Congrats. I had I cannot take any credit, Alfredo. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well we'll hear all about it soon, right? Yes. How you feel? You feel ready? Yeah. Let's get it on. All right. Floor is all yours. Okay, to begin with, so small town Ogden, Utah. I grew up in a family of uh, there was five of us. Older brother, older sister, younger brother, younger sister. I was in the middle. Now, if you think Utah, you think Mormons. Now, an interesting thing is, is that my mother was Catholic and my dad uh, was Catholic. And my brothers and sisters all actually became Mormons. I'm the only one that uh, did not. I was, I guess, what some of us, I, I, I heard a lot in the rooms. I was kind of the black sheep, I think, coming out of the chute. So... What all occurred with that, the family I grew up in, I had a great mom and dad. I had good brothers and sisters, all the same things that everybody goes through. But one, one thing I would bring up in my family that we did not do, we sure, we, that we did do, we had a lot of secrets. A lot, a lot of secrets. We didn't tell grandma this, we didn't tell uncle so-and-so this, and we didn't tell aunt so-and-so. And I got real confused as a child on who to tell. Everything else was normal, if that makes sense. Um, one of the things, too, that I'd like to bring up about my story, at the ripe old age of 11, um, something that I find very common, and I think it's very important for people in recovery to share, and this happened for me, and this is my own personal story. It's eight, at the age of 11, um, I went down uh, to see my grandmother and my uncle, and at that period of time, uh, I had an uncle that uh, was a school teacher, elementary school teacher, that sexually abused me. And that happened on three separate occasions. And I um, never told anybody about that as a child. Never, never. And I'm not saying that caused me to be an alcoholic. I'm not saying that, uh, that that's why I went through what I went through. I think it had some influence on me because I held that secret, okay? I started drinking at the ripe old age of 12. And what happened on that, I was on a Boy Scouting trip and, or a snowmobile trip. And I found a friend brought in some Lucky Lager beers and some Key Largo wine. And the, uh, the scout leaders were gone, and we drove our snowmobiles back into the hill country. And I got five Lucky Lagers, and I drank all five of them. One of the things that happened to me when I drank those five beers is Carl Young in our program talks about alcohol as being spirits. And we talk... One thing that happened to me on that day, and I remember it vividly back there in the snow country, is I got very spiritual. I got very happy. I was one with all. I was connected. And it was one of the more pleasant feelings that I can remember. After that snowmobile trip, um, what happened after the years, after the first drink, is every weekend I would get somebody on a, uh, to buy me Boone's Farm, Mad Dog 2020, Key Largo, Thunderbird, cheap rock gut wines. And I would uh, guzzle the wine down. Sometimes I'd throw it back up and uh, I'd get another bottle and throw it back down just to get the feeling. And uh, that continued every weekend thereafter. And then I was into junior high school. Junior high school, not that and when we're talking about Alcoholics Anonymous, I know it pertains to alcohol, but I found some of the other miscellaneous drugs like marijuana and so on and so forth. 
And uh, I also graduated into, uh, I had a good friend. It's amazing how you find friends that are that drink or have parents that drink like you want to drink. I had friends that had parents that were, uh, if I look back now, they were alcoholics. And that's where I hung. And I started finding Black Velvet in their house and Old Crow and Vodka and Gilby's Gin. And I could hit on that and they wouldn't know any of the difference. And I would drink that and uh, get that spiritual feeling. And I didn't recognize that really I had a problem. But one of the things that you would think, I, I was... My teeth are pretty straight, right, Alfredo and Kaylee? I can confirm this, yes. Thank you. <laughs> I had orthodontics back then. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you would find strange at a young, as a young adult is that before I went in and had my braces removed, I had them put on. Before I went in and had them removed, I, was, I got out of school. I went over to my friend's house. His stepdad had a fifth of black velvet. I consumed about a quarter of that before I went to the orthodontist. And I sat there with the orthodontist and he removed those braces. Now, I would think that he's that close to me. You would think he smelled alcohol. Nobody said anything. And then I came back to the house after my braces were off and uh, continued to finish that bottle off and, and blacked out. I came to and went home. So... If I, when I go back on my history, that seems maybe brothers and sisters didn't do that. A lot of my good friends didn't do that. I kind of had to have a drink or to be high just to kind of get through the day. That was my MO. When I got into high school, um, one of the things that I did frequently was uh, Wyoming was just across the border. And from where I lived, it was about an hour's drive. Now, one of the things about Wyoming and Utah, Utah served at that time 3.2 beer. If you went into Wyoming, supposedly it was six-point beer, and they had malt liquor and malt beverages, and you only had to be 18 years old to buy liquor. So I got I had a fake ID. I would drive over the border, and I would buy the 6.0 beer. I'd buy the malt liquors, and I'd also get the hard liquor, and I'd come back with a trunk full. Now, one of the things I'd do is... I'd go back and at the nighttime in the high school parking lot, I'd open up my trunk and I would sell six pack of Coors, um, Mickey Big Mouth, um, Colt 45 for twice the amount that I paid for it. So. <laughs> you are an entrepreneur. Already. <laughs> so, so I, I, I was doing that. The other thing that I, I don't get, but I did is I, I found hallucinogenics in high school. And one of the things I did is um, I started doing hallucinogenics and I started doing them every weekend. I'd do them on Friday night and Saturday nights. And I did that for an over a year. And then uh, the hallucinogenics dipped down to where we would just do it during the holiday season. And how I did that is I would go into school, I'd drop, and then I'd walk into school and see how long I could stay there before I the teachers and the students started flipping me out and I'd have to leave. Because it was, it'd get a little, for me, a little tense, so I'd have to leave and be by myself. But anyway, again, if I look at those behaviors, kind of different. Um, I remember, as I drank through high school, I remember many, many occasions where I was dumped out on my front lawn by my friends or people that I worked under that were older than me on the front grass and they would go up and knock on the door and my mom or dad would have to come up and find me and um, nobody thought I had a problem nobody said anything my mom and dad both drank but not heavy not heavy at all so one of the things that continued to happen with through high school is um I, uh, I, at 18, it, not continued, what happened at 18, I started having grand mal seizures. And when I say grand mal, I, they were, I kicked things down, tore rooms apart, um, lost total consciousness, lost bladder control, so on and so forth. And they took me in, and funny story, when I went to the hospital for, for my first grand mal seizure, 
my dad took me. And um, I had friends sneak in. Uh, when you have seizures, it's not a good idea when you're on seizure medication to drink. Um, it's not suggested at all. And uh, I had friends sneaking in six packs of beer to me in my hospital room and uh, bottles of, of rock gut wine. And I would drink in the hospital. And I continued to have seizures. They continued to try to medicate me. Um, finally, they had me on a drug called Dilatin and Phenobarbital. Now, Phenobarbital, if anybody knows about it, I could sell that stuff because a lot of people like to abuse it. And Phenobarbital and alcohol is a major depressant. So, so that was that was interesting. Finally, at uh, 21, I, I I met what I thought was the love of my life. Um, and uh, her dad was a, a colonel in the Air Force. Her mom, they were Air Force brats. And he was a, a um, what you call, I was a, a, a daily drinker, or most of the time drinker. He was a binge drinker. And I fell into that family. Um, his, her dad loved me. And I think she want, she liked me because that's all she'd ever grown up with. But one of the things that my first wife grew up with um, was abuse, being locked in closets, being bullied, so on and so forth. And one of the things I noticed, we we finally got married at 22, 23 years old. At that time, we had our first child. One of the things that I noticed about me is, it says in the big book, we, we try different forms of alcohol. I tried fine wine. I tried brandies. I tried ports. I tried sherries. I tried bourbons. I tried whiskeys. I tried vodkas. I tried gin, rum, dark rum, liqueurs. And uh, all to prove that maybe it was one or the other, but I always changed my liquors up. Beer and wine. Beer I didn't really care for, guys. You know why? I had to go to the bathroom too much. So beer, it's not really popular for me, okay? But so as I went through this, this relationship with my wife, my first wife, one of the things that happened, my dad never laid a hand on my mother. Never. I don't ever remember him even speaking ill toward her. They got in their, they would get in their arguments, but not. And what happened to me in this marriage is I became physically and emotionally abusive. And the next morning when I would come to or I'd always say I was sorry. Always. I didn't mean to do that and it will never happen again. I didn't mean to do that and I'm sorry it'll never happen again. And I meant it sincerely. And I truly felt bad for what I had done. And I thought, how did I, this, what? Never, I didn't learn this. I was never taught this. I was never taught to be this way with women. And uh, we went on, my wife and I, and we had another two children. And I remember one time, um, well, I'm going to take that back. Before the third child came along, we were living in a, a home or an apartment. I remember one Friday nights used to be, I'd, I, I'd call her and tell her I'd be home, but I had business to take care of, business functions to go to. What those business functions were is I was out drinking. And I wouldn't get home until 8, 7 or 8 in the morning. And I remember one morning I pulled into the carport and I had a half of a, a quart of a scotch in a brown paper bag. And our, the level was looking down at the carport so that my wife and my older boy and my daughter, not they were little, were looking out. And I remember getting out of the car and I dropped that uh, quart of scotch onto the cement and it broke. And um, I tried to collect the glass and the uh, scotch. And I remember looking up at them and seeing their faces. And I thought, oh. And I still didn't know there was anything wrong. And I remember um, uh, times after that that I would come in and I would get home at 8 in the Saturday morning and try to sneak in before she got up, 7 in the morning. And I remember one time I got into a bathtub of warm water just to try to ease in because I was pretty baked up and 
I remember waking up at four in the afternoon. I guess it was four. I don't know why I know that now. But the bathroom was blacked out and the water was frozen cold that I was in. And I think she truly just shut the door and prayed to God I'd drown. I do. And um, then uh, our third child came along. One of the things I found was cocaine. And the only reason cocaine really appealed to me, it was it was that time of the, a lot of people use cocaine. I'm sure they still do today. But I found with cocaine, um, I could drink longer and harder. And uh, one of the things I th used to sit there with cocaine, uh, um, another wine drinking phase for me, I'd get good burgundies. I don't know why, and sit there and play backgammon with people and snort cocaine. And I would dip my fingers into my wine glass and put a little wine up each nostril, thinking I was a connoisseur of, co of burgundies and, co uh, and cocaine. <laughs> but, <laughs> so, I don't know, whatever, right? So, uh, so if anybody's out there wants to know how to be a connoisseur of cocaine and burgundy wine, just call me. Anyway, um, so I went through all that. And the third child, Brennan, uh, sorry, my son came along. He was, uh, uh, he was when I was getting it to my worst. And I remember he was, um, when they're uh, colicky, he was yellow. And he needed to be in an incubator at home. And I um, remember sitting up, uh, my wife had gone to bed and the other two had gone to sleep and uh, other two children. And uh, I would sit there and I would rotate him in the incubator because I had to, and I'd drink. And I remember just crying. Just crying. And uh, feeling so dejected. And then uh, got him through and he was okay. And then the the last couple of years, what happened is one of the things that I, I quit eating food. And um, what I would do is on my way home, I would stop at liquor stores. And one thing I did do, and I don't know why this, I guess that's this, uh, uh, I'm an egomaniac with an inferiority complex, what they say, I picked that up in the program, um, is that I would go to liquor stores on my way home and pick up the airport minis. And uh, I would uh, go to different liquor stores because I didn't want the liquor store owners to know that I had a drinking problem. God forbid, right? I don't have a drinking problem, but just in case you think that, we don't want you to know that, right? So I'd pick up the, the, the flavor of the mini bottles of the month. It'd be bourbon, tequila, whatever. And I'd pick up two, three, four shooters. And on the way home, I'd, I'd shoot them and hand grenade them out the side of the car and um, get home, and I'd immediately go and get myself a drink, and my wife would come to me and say, you've been drinking again. I'd say, yeah, I just fixed myself a drink. You're right, I have, I've been drinking. And uh, how my, my day, my evening went from that point on is, I would, I don't wanna say pray, I would say that I looked forward to the time when she would take the children up to put them to bed. And that was upstairs. And then she would go to bed. And then I could get it on. And I would drink. And I would drink. And uh, finally at about one or two in the morning, I would uh, knew that I needed to probably get something, uh, some, some other caloric value in my body. And um, I would open up a can of Dinty Moore stew or uh, Denison's chili, one can, and heat it on the stove and eat that down. And then I would, so it, it depended on where I passed out. Because I don't believe, I used to thought I fell asleep, that's not true. I, I would try to navigate the stairs upward to get to bed. Here's some nights... I made it halfway up, a quarter way up, all the way up. It depended on the evening. And you would find me that morning, I'd come to where I stopped, where I, I, I lost it. I don't know where it was, but I'd come to on the stairs sometimes and things like that. 
So that was my night. That I I, I kind of quit going social and and uh, and forgive me for backing up a little bit. When I, there's another time where I th- would have thought that I had a drinking problem, is I would come home and late at night, and my wife would lock me out of the house, and I couldn't get in. I'd bang and bang and bang, and finally, I would just curl up on the front porch. And folks, I gotta let you know, you don't know me, and you never will. I well, I, maybe I hope you will someday. But the point being is, I used to dress with a beautiful coat, suit coat, tailor-made slacks, tailor-made suit coat, tailor-made shirts, beautiful ties, French cuff shirts, beautiful French cuffs. I was dressed to the nines when I left in the morning. I was tailor-made, and I was sitting out on the front. I came to on the front doorstep on more than one occasion with frost on my clothing and waving to the neighbors driving by to go to work. That was normal. Um, I remember many occasions of going to a bar and coming home, missing a coat sleeve from my suit coat or a pant leg from my suit, not knowing how I lost the pant leg or the coat sleeve. I was one of those folks, I'm, I'm a, not a very big guy, uh, but I was one of those guys that walked into the bar after I'd had a few drinks, and I would look at you and I'd throw a punch. I don't know why, just thought you needed to be punched. Not, and I didn't do it to women, I only, no, I did it to my, in the home. Not any better, I'm just, I shouldn't be joking about that. But the, the, the point that I'm saying is, I'd throw a punch and they'd knock me, knock me down and I'd get up and say, is that all you got really? I got, I got people that, I, my, my wife punches harder than that. They'd knock me down again. I'd get back up and the guy would say, stay down, stupid. I wouldn't. That's, that, that's my personality. Anyway, dumb. Um, and and uh, so toward the, the end, the last, I, I was thrown in detox a number of occasions. The detoxes back then, I have to tell you, I, was, I sponsored a gentleman that just came out of the detox here. And he was saying how nice detox is here. I don't know. I haven't been in detox for many years. But one of the things he said about detoxes is when I went into detox, the times that I was put in, I was handcuffed. Uh, I, I used to take swings at policemen. I was not gently handcuffed. Um, I was thrown in the car. I was thrown into detox. Uh, they stripped me. They asked me, they told me to get in the shower. The shower had mold and crap all over it and barf. And uh, then they'd ask me if I wanted a vitamin B shot, and then they'd tell me to get in bed, and at 6 a.m. the lights would come on, and the bowl speaker would come on and say, breakfast is being served, get up. Hmm. That was my experience in detox. Was that here in Colorado? That was actually in Utah and then a couple of times in Colorado. How did you get to detox? Police escort. Uh, Not escort. Gotcha. Backseat. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So, anyway. So, I digress. So, in the, in the end, finally, um, to cut my story short and then tell you how it is today. Um, my drinking had progressed to where, in the end, I didn't go out socially. Because one of the things that happened to me after two drinks was when I take a couple of drinks, my tongue would get fat. I'd start slurring my words immediately. And I share a story. I was drinking gin toward the end a lot. And I came to the conclusion. And I think I've shared this with Kaylee. I don't know if you, I've ever done it with you, Alfredo. But one of the things I came to the conclusion why would I be slurring my words so fast? It's, gosh, I, I know I can drink. It's not like it, I can't keep drinking. And I determined that in gin, what is the component in gin that makes gin different than other alcohol or other alcoholic beverages? Juniper berry. By God, it's the goddamn juniper berry, excuse me, juniper berry that causes me to slur my tongue. So I immediately went just to vodka. What the hell? Okay. Now, one of the things, folks, again, egomaniac with an inferiority complex, I used to drink the top shelf liquor, I thought. 
I used to have an app bottle of Absolute that I would keep a quart of Absolute in my freezer. Toward the end, I finally determined, why am I buying Absolute? After the first couple of drinks, who gives a crap? So I finally determined in the end, I would go down to the liquor store and buy handles of Pow Pow Vodka. I don't know if it's even still made. It was in a plastic jug. It was $9 a gallon. And I would decant it into my Absolute bottle. And I don't know why I would decant it into the Absolute bottle for appearances, I guess. Okay? So... Then uh, April twenty, April 19th of 1987 is D-Day. April 19th, uh, we had some family coming over, um, her, her side of the family, my wife's side. And they got there at 3 p.m. And one of the things I could always guarantee about them coming over to visit is they were going to sit down and drink, and we probably wouldn't have dinner till 9 or 10. Because the best way to ruin a buzz to me is eat. Let's keep this going as long as we can before we have to ingest any food. Well, they said we have to leave by 5. Oh, I was mad. So I immediately poured myself a tumbler and uh, I put a little orange juice on top of it. And, and that that's another funny thing I have to say. Since I've been sober, folks, do you know how many times... An MD or a doctor has asked me, how much do I drink? Not once. Do you know back in my day, what do doctors used to ask me, Kelly, how much do you drink? Why <laughs> don't I have a couple? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. They said, well, a couple. What's a couple? Just a couple. Regular couple like everybody else. A couple. Now, what a couple is to me, folks, it's a it's a 16-ounce tumbler, ice, filled Almost to the top with vodka and float some orange juice on it. Um, maybe no orange juice after a while, but that's a good screwdriver. Or you can put a little tomato juice if you want a Bloody Mary. Or you can just uh, throw a little no vermouth and very dry martini and forget the ice. Just shake it. So we can do all kinds of things with that, right? I can be James Bond. But um, So there's all kinds of things we can do with that. But that day I, 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 I poured that those tumblers and I... I must around the time they were leaving, 5, 5.30, got into, I don't remember, blackout. And I didn't always blackout, sometimes. And uh, I don't remember anything of the rest of that night. Next morning, I my wife was downstairs. I don't know where the other the children were or anything. And I was in bed, and I woke up, and I came, I, I came to. And my, and I... Uh, called my work and said I was ill. I had a sinus infection. Um, I've had, when I was drinking, I had more sinus infections, more colds, more flu symptoms, more diarrhea, more whatever. I, I had to skip work a lot of times. Okay. And uh, I hung up the phone and I remember my wife yelling from downstairs saying, you're not going to do this anymore. And I said, well, what are you going to do? I yelled down, what are you going to do about it? She said, I'm either going to call your mom or I'm going to call your, your boss. Now, I don't, I don't remember Kayla and Alfredo, what happened next. But I remember next, my wife was on the upstairs bathroom floor, laying down, looking at me, and this is my vision, and, and I'm not trying to be dramatic. She was looking at me like I was Charlie Manson. She was scared, and this is not the first time. My daughter was beating on my leg saying, don't hurt mommy. It's not the first time. My oldest boy was in his bedroom screaming, and my baby boy was in his crib screaming. And it was the first time in my sobriety that, uh, or my, not in my life, that I realized something was really fucked up. And that's the only word I know to use. And I knew something was fucked up with me very, very deeply. And for me, that's my first spiritual experience that I've ever had in my life. Or not maybe in my life, but that when I came to the conclusion that something was wrong with me. And it wasn't anybody else's fault. And then uh, what fell from there is I was fortunately admitted, um, uh, I... I called my boss, and uh, they had me interviewed 
at a place called the Regal Center in Colorado Springs. One of the things that I did is I did the questionnaire uh, for Alcoholics Anonymous, um, which I had somewhat taken before. Is uh, I didn't, and by the way, I didn't know anything about Alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous. Nothing. I'd called you guys once in a drunken stupor at two in the morning because I, I nobody would talk to me anymore, and I thought maybe Alcoholics Anonymous would talk to me because I like to talk to people at two and three in the morning. I don't know why, but that was a good time for me. It was very inconvenient for everybody else. But I, I remember they got me on the hotline, and then they put me through to some guy, and uh, he introduced himself, and I told him who I was, and I, I was going through some rough times. Yeah, yeah, and wanted him to... He said, I'll meet you at Village Inn at 7 in the morning. We'll have coffee. I said, no, 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 no. Uh, I just like to talk right now. Well, that's okay. We'll meet at Village Inn at 7 in the morning. We'll have coffee. Do you know where the Village Inn is? Well, yeah. Well, we'll meet at seven and we'll have coffee. I said, no, you don't, you don't understand. And uh, he hung up the phone. I thought, what an asshole. I mean, really? <laughs> Jeez, I'm important. <laughs> anyway, so um, so that was the only exposure I really had to alcohol. So my, my, my boss came over. He checked on me, asked if everything was okay. He even indicated, he said, we've had people in the office saying we smell booze on you all the time. And he said, I, I didn't want to believe it. I didn't want to believe it. And I think that's one of the problems with alcoholism. How many people don't want to believe it? Mm -hmm. I, I didn't want to believe it for sure. So, and, and I think the people around me that I affected so gravely didn't want to believe it either. So anyway, we, they took me up to the Regal Center. Regal Center, they had that, uh, I don't know, it's 14 questions, something like that. But, uh, I, and I think I briefly had looked at it somewhere else. But it said, do you drink in the morning? Do you drink alone? And, and they're not essay questions. They're not multiple choice. They're not kind of sometimes. They're yes or no. Right? And I finally, I got straight A's. I answered every one of the questions yes. I drank in the morning. I drank by myself. Um, I, I drank to get happy. I drank to get sad. I don't know what all the questions are now. But I, I got a 100%. Scored high. And a lady came in and she said, Kelly, uh, that she was a counselor or something. She said, Kelly, she said, I, 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 and I know why you're here and everything, and my, my wife was with me, and, and she said, I, I'm, I don't usually say this, but she said, I'd have to tell you that if I had to tell, say, you're, you're a chronic alcoholic, you have alcoholism. And she said, I usually don't say that, but I'm listening to the story and what you just did. She said, now I've got my last question for you before we go on. And uh, I said, what's that? And she said, ever thought about committing suicide? I said, well, hell yes, everybody has. You betcha. She said, oh, okay. If you were to commit suicide, do you have a plan? I said, well, sure. She said, what's that plan, please? I said, well, what I'd do is I'd get a bottle of Jim Beam, Jack Daniels, Smirnoff Vodka, I don't care, flavor of the month. And uh, I got a, a Browning side-by-side 12-gauge shotgun. I'd uh, drive back into the foothills. I'd load two shells into that side-by-side. Uh, I'd crawl back in as far as I could. I'd drink some liquid courage. And uh, I'd put both barrels in my mouth, take my shoes off and my sock off, and I'd use my big toe and push that trigger. But I wouldn't do it. And she said, well, Kelly, here's one thing. Let me just, just so you know. She said, most people don't think about suicide. Yeah, some do, but not most. And the other thing is when people have a plan, it's very dangerous. And my, my boss, by the way, wanted me to go to outpatient treatment. And she said, I would highly recommend that you go into an inpatient program. And we can't take you here, but I know of a very good one, which was St. Luke's AMI up in Denver, Colorado. So I came and told my boss. The company found out, and I didn't even have an—I uh, I don't know. Some, they put something together, and five days later, I was escorted up and went through a 40-day inpatient program system. I remember sitting there, and um, my first night, first when I checked in, and there was first two things I had to do is when I, I, I felt it necessary to call my father. And I called my dad, and I said, Dad, I'm, I just wanted to call you and tell you that I was admitted uh, into an alcohol and drug rehab center. 
And he's first words out of his mouth. He said, Kelly, your mother and I cannot do any more for you. I had conned them, bled them, asked for money. And I said, Dad, this is the first time I'm not calling you for anything. I'm just letting you know. And I know, just to elaborate on that story, I know my dad had the, my entire family, brothers and sister-in-laws, and everybody gathered the next day. And he said, I've got some very terrible news. Kelly's been admitted into an alcohol and rehab, drug rehab center. And fortunately, I've got a brother-in-law who's an MD, said uh, to my dad and family, he said, maybe it's not as bleak as you think. Maybe it's the best thing in the world that ever could have happened. Hmm. And my dad didn't realize that, so... Um, but, um, so I walked in and that's the first thing. The second thing I had is I sat there on the intake and, uh, the guy looked at me and I had a pack of Marlboro red boxes. And back then you could smoke in the treatment centers. I was smoking and shaking like a leaf. And uh, he said, can you smile? And I couldn't smile. I thought everything was over. The rest of my life, I never thought I'd dance, sing, or have any fun. But it was over. But one of the things that happened in that uh, meeting is I was able to share with him about being sexually abused. For some reason, it came out when I got sober. I never told anybody. I don't know why I had to tell it. And it was like barfing. Uh, and anyway, I got in there and I saw these 12 steps and 12 traditions on the wall. And I started listening to, it was, it was co-ed. A couple of important things about that is I started listening to, uh, I was surrounded by junkies, crack addicts, alcoholics, you name it. But I started listening to the stories. And, uh. All of a sudden, and, and people were coming over and talking to me. And uh, I started listening to some of the stories, and they were like mine. It's like, well, you're as weird as I am. Really, I didn't know people like that were like me. And then I started getting closer to them and closer to them. And you go very attached to those people in that hospital, or I did. And uh, very attached. And I started laughing again with them when we would read list stories. And they threw me into detox for uh, seven days and detoxed me. And then we had to go to meetings and counseling and stuff like that. I was really blocked up. One of the things I learned in there is about this abuse thing is that um, I listened to women that were abused in there and how they'd rather be emotionally abused or physically abused than emotionally abused. And I didn't know that. I didn't know, and I, that really cut me to the heart. So, um, I, I was staying in there for 40 days. There's a lot that went on in there. One of the things I was introduced to was to Alcoholics Anonymous. And Alcoholics Anonymous was uh, the, um, uh, if I was told anything, is this is going to save your butt, you go out. And when I was released, they said, number one, Kelly, you need to go out and get a sponsor and ask for a temporary sponsor. Um, you need to go to a meeting the first night we release you. When I was released, I was on a Friday night. Um, I was, uh, I went to a meeting. I ended up turning around in a liquor store parking lot. It scared the shit out of me. And uh, I got to the meeting. I stood up and I said, my name's Kelly. I'm an alcoholic. I need a temporary sponsor. And... Uh, some guys after the meeting gathered around. They said, now, uh, here's a quarter. We're going to take you over to Village Inn. We're going to have coffee tonight. Call your wife and tell her where you're going. And I'm what? Call your wife and tell her where you're going. I'd never done that before. <laughs> <laughs> I never. So I called her and I said, I'm going to coffee with some people with Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and then uh, I, I, I finally got in and one of the things to short because I feel like I'm going way too long and I apologize. Um, 
One of the things when I came out, also my boss got with me and he said, Kelly, there's a couple of conditions now that we put you through the treatment and everything that we have. And these are serious conditions. One, there's two ways you'll lose your job. If you ever drink or do drugs, that's it, an absolute, we will fire you. You will be let go. And number two is lack of performance. I was scared to death of the drink and the drug and the performance, really. Um, I never done, I never worked before uh, without drink or drug supporting me. So anyway, so I had that. I remember in my early sobriety, I was sitting in there and they had an aftercare group um, that uh, I would go in there in Colorado Springs when I got back home and I was going to do it. I did 90 meetings, folks, in 90 days. I went and did more, way more than that. That's the only place I could get comfortable. Anyway, because um, that's what they told me. I'd do 90 meetings in 90 days. Mm -hmm. I did it. I, and I was sometimes two and three meetings a day. It was the only place I could find peace. Anyway, I uh, remember one night, one day, my wife was wa washing the children, putting them in the tub, and bathing them. And I was sitting on the toilet. And uh, when I say toilet, not, I was just sitting there uh, and watching her bathe the children. And um, it, it felt like I was having a bad acid trip. Bad, 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 bad acid trip. And I was totally sober. And I told her I have to leave, I have to go. And I went down to the Regal Center, this hospital in, in Colorado Springs, and I met up with a guy, um, Mark, and uh, Mark was a counselor down there. And I said, Mark, I said, I'm, I'm freaking, I don't know what to do. And he looked at me, this is with maybe 50 days sobriety. He said, Kelly, the only thing I can tell you, the only thing I can give you, is you gotta give time time. And you know, I hear people go through this program and I learned the 12 steps. I was, I, I had sponsors. I did aftercare. By the way, folks, I was so screwed up that I went to Codependency Anonymous, I went to Narcotics Anonymous, I went to Cocaine Anonymous, and I finally got, um, I, fi I went to an, my aftercare group too, right? And I was sitting there in aftercare, and then I'm gonna get to my sponsor on gratitude, my sponsor that I found. I, I'm, I'm in an aftercare group, which was up in Denver, Colorado. I had to drive from Colorado Springs up to go to see it. It was a couple hour long. I got into this group, and in this group of men, there was a bunch of guys from Codependency Anonymous, adult children uh, of alcoholics, like um, Al-Anon, whatever. And I was listening to them, and I, and I had gone to two or three sessions with them, and I was listening to them talk about their life. And I'm, I'm, I'm certain going, bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. I didn't say that. I was just, in my head, bullshit. Why I'm just your judge, don't ask me why. I was judging. Okay, and I think it was the third session I was there, early in sobriety. All of a sudden, I know my mouth opened. And I know that my mouth closed. I do not remember what was said in between it opening and shutting. And when I opened my mouth and came, I guess, to, if you will, mm -hmm. I looked around the room of men, including the facilitator, and everybody's mouth was wide open. I don't know what I said. After the session, my the facilitator, Brady, came over to me. He said, Kelly, he said, have you ever thought about psychiatric help? <laughs> oh, guys, do you know what an arrow is like in your heart? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, I, I was getting sicker. What's wrong here? I'm sicker. I, I'm supposed to be getting better. So I, I uh, um, and by the way, for you all to know that, Wife of mine that I had that I talked about, lovely lady. Um, she left me after I was six months sober because I tried to push her out of the cart 55 miles an hour. She finally uh, had had enough. So, and uh, I still had a lot of rage. So come come along. Uh, finally, I uh, I I did seek out psychiatric help. And I got a sponsor. I found an old guy that had many, many years. And he was the type of alcoholic that was committed to the sanitariums before they had treatment centers and detoxes and all that stuff. They'd throw him in the sanitarium, rubber room, straight jackets. 
and his name was John. And I met John at, at an old meeting in the forest. And uh, John came up to me. He says, you're a real alcoholic, aren't you? I said, how'd you know? He said, I just listened to you. <laughs> he laughed. And I said, yeah, I guess. I don't know, but I, I guess I'm a real alcoholic. And uh, so uh, he he looked at me, and I looked at him, and I was in a lot of pain. And I said, would you sponsor me? And he said, yeah, maybe. Let's see. We got a, I got a few things we'll have to do, and we'll see how it works out. And I said, okay. I said, what are they? And he said, well, first you're going to call me every morning at 7 a.m. And then we'll start from there. Every morning at 7 a.m. So I said, okay. That was early for me, 7 a.m., but I did it. 7 a.m., I called John. I said, okay, call, John, calling in, checking in. Okay, I want you to make your bed and call me back. I'd go, John, you make my bed. Yeah, I want your bed made, and I want it nice and tight. If I ever come over to your house, it better look good. <laughs> I said, okay, so I'd make my bed. And he said, call me back. I'd call him back. And he said, have you had breakfast? I said, no, make yourself some breakfast, call me back. And I'm, I'm, after a few weeks, a few days of this, and then I call him back, and he'd tell me, um, uh, he'd give me, go out and ask God to help you today, and your whatever. And I finally said, John, what's got, what's freaking making my bed and having a breakfast got to do with staying sober, really? He said, Kelly, did you ask me to sponsor you? I said, yeah. He said, then, do just what I ask you. What I finally came out with John later on in my life that I finally figured out, John was teaching me how to live again. And he was teaching me any good practice because guess what? It's nice to have your bed made when you come back home. It's at least I did one thing right today. <laughs> I think they even teach that in the military. <laughs> mm -hmm. But, okay. Um, so John took me through. And... Uh, what happened when uh, um, I, I, my wife divorced me? She took custody of the children. Um, without going into detail, after I was a year sober, I got custody of three children, a boy, a girl, and a boy. And uh, I was given full custody back then. And I was scared to death. I didn't know how to be a dad. And um, I remember sitting there, and they were eating cereal on a Saturday morning. And I was watching them eat cereal and watch cartoons. And I was sitting in a corner. And I dropped down on my butt. And I was almost in the, like the fetal position with tears rolling down my face. I was scared to death. And I remember calling John up. I said, John, am I normal? I thought I was losing it. He said, Kelly, for an alcoholic, you're normal. <laughs> you know, those words to me, that... It was like, thank you, I'll take that. It was nice to be normal for something. And uh, John took me through these steps. And Don, John told me that these, these steps, it's not, we don't work these steps, we take these steps. And we take them when I say that these are principles that we practice. And he taught me how to relive and then I had my psychiatric care. Now one thing I'll have to tell you is I literally had to live when I wasn't taking care of my children and working, I had to be in a, um, a club to be comfortable. And it took nine years of my sobriety for my rage bouts to go away. I, I didn't go through a lot of pink clouds in my early sobriety. And the only reason I say that is not to deter people or say that you're not gonna get it. I'm just saying that I remember there's this old speaker, Clancy, that's no longer with us. God bless him. Clancy spoke in assembly at two years sober for me. And he said, I'm going to tell you all something. And I'm paraphrasing, and I'm not sure I'm not quoting Clancy exactly, but I know I'm pretty close. As Clancy said this, he said, I'm going to tell you, you're all going to try different things. You're going to, I'll call it synonymous, but you're going to maybe try on on some adult children, maybe some codependency, some narcotics, whatever. Other psychiatric, all good. I'm not putting any of it down. It's all necessary because this isn't our big book. If we're honest... Those are all very useful tools. But he said, do one thing for me. Make sure that Alcoholics Anonymous is the arch or the, 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 is the, bed, the fed, bedrock of your sobriety. 
And I will say that today that's been my bedrock. And that's why I'm still talking to you today. Because I do not believe that I would be 66 years old and sitting here in front of you. Okay. So that being said, I got through all of that. I met a lovely lady. She raised, she had two children. I had three children. She raised six children, that including me. God bless her. Okay. And, and she's one of those, she, she should be Peter Pan, or she's Peter Pan because two things about her. Children love her and animals love her. And she put up with me. And I was hard to deal with at times because I was very moody. And um, she put up with me. And, 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 and I would watch her and I would think, how much I wanted to be more like her. How I wish I was like her. Because I still see kids that gravitate back to our house today when they're older. They come back because of her and how lovely she was. I mean, maybe I had some influence sometimes, but not as consistently. I'm not trying to knock myself down, but she had the major influence. So where we are today, folks, is uh, I sponsor... A few people. I'll tell you about sponsorship. It's uh, actually, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, lovely thing. But when people come up to me and say, how many people have you kept sober? My comment back to them is this. I don't keep notches on my belt. If you stay sober, awesome. If you don't stay sober, I feel bad. But I can't, I'm not responsible. And it took me many moons. The other thing that I believe is wonderful that we don't see enough of today that I still am active with is I still get a chance to make 12-step calls on drunks, live drunks. And I remember when I first got sober, I asked John. He would get me out on those 12-step calls, and we'd go in and see some pretty bad drunks at 2 or 3 in the morning. And I thought I had nothing to say. But I remember coming out of those houses when the sun was coming up, and I'd ask John, why do I feel good? I'd feel good. He said, because you were a service. You weren't thinking about you, Kelly. And that's my biggest enemy is me. It's when I get too far into my head. And uh, John taught me more and more how to get out of that. The other thing, I'm going to talk a little bit about God. John had me make a, say a prayer when I first got sober. He said, I want you to go home and get on your knees. And I had, I remember I was divorced at the time. I had a mattress. I had a lo love seat that I bought from Goodwill, a lamp. And um, I think I had coffee in the fridge and some food. That was all I had. It was a standing lamp. And I came home and I, he told me to get on my knees. I did. And uh, this was my first prayer. And for any of you that are listening, I don't mean to offend anyone, but this is what it was, is that I was so angry. I said, fuck you, fuck you, and fuck all of you that with, on your horses that you rode in on, and if you think you're so god big and bad, come down here and strike me dead right now. And I was pissed. And guess what? I'm still sitting here today. Nobody came and bolted me. And I called John the next morning. He said, did you pray? And I said, yes, I did, and I told him with that prayer. He said, Kelly, I'm going to tell you something. That was the first honest prayer you've ever uttered. And I'll bet you God and everybody else that you included in that prayer can take it. And I thought, wow. He said, not just stay. Well, my understanding of God today is, is when I'm in service to people, um, and when I'm with other alcoholics, or just in, when I open the door for a nice lady, when I'm not thinking about me, or I'm sitting with you two, my spirit's filled. I'm filled up. I know, there's got to be a God because I feel it. I don't know why. I just know. I know there's something. It's when I get locked up and I get irritable, restless, discontent, and I know what to do about that. That's when I don't know there's a God and I don't know there's any spirit. And the thing I need to do is go out and be of service, go to a meeting, and don't pick up. So, uh, I mean, that was kind of jumping around. But I am, uh, 
and I've had people say, Kelly, we're very proud of you or for what you've accomplished in the, the years that you've been sober. And I tell everybody, this is not. This was something that was gifted to me. I take no responsibility. I could not have done this by myself. All the people, God's grace, or I'm graced. I, I truly believe I'm graced today for being able to sit in this chair and talk to you too. And also, guess what? I smile today. I can dance today. I can sing. It's not very good, but it's okay. <laughs> and those are all things I think I said in my earlier part that I never thought I would do again, ever. I, honestly, I never thought I would feel joy. And today I know what joy is. So um, I'm a pretty lucky guy. And there's more, but God, oh, Friday we could be here all night. Well, I was going to say, Kelly, do you want to tell us about the sobriety qualifier? Oh, it's sobriety qualifier, right. Thanks, Kayla. So, guys, guess what? So 20 years happened. I was 20 years sober. Doing pretty good, by the way. Married. We had the Brady Bunch, minus one. Well, no, actually, we had me. So we, we had the Brady Bunch, but we didn't have uh, Mr. Brady because I was one of the kids. Um so we had that, and uh, I was invited down to the Betty Ford Center to speak uh, to the alumni group. I did not go to Betty Ford, but I was uh, invited down to speak for them. And uh, yours truly got a chance to uh, speak to a bunch of recovering alcoholics and addicts. And it was one of those days, I don't know if all of you have ever had it before, but I was every word that was coming off my tongue, at least I thought, was coming out pretty nicely and fluidly, and it wasn't jumping back and forth. And after I got done with that meeting, it was my 20th birthday, after I got done with that meeting, people were coming up to me and saying, God, we got so much out of thank you, thank you, thank you. And whoa, my ego just went straight up to the ceiling. I thought I was the next Jesus walking on water. <laughs> so, And then my wife had a, this plaque where she had saved all 20 of my coins, and she had a, a, a hat hanger underneath. This is something you can hang your hat on. The kids were all there. They were all thinking dad was great and um so guess what i quit going to meetings not not intentionally i just i i in my mind i didn't plan this i just kind of quit going to meetings quit going to meetings and for a year and i i started hanging out with a guy that i know lovely man truly is but he's a dope smoker and he's got a cabin up in uh breckenridge colorado we had to do some work in that area and i would drive up with him and uh, he'd ask, he'd get high before, and then we'd drive up. And then he started asking me, do you mind if I smoke dope uh, in the car while we're going and you drive? And I'd say, yeah, just keep the window down. So, okay, yeah. And then it got colder. The winter's coming. And I started saying, no, don't, don't worry about it. And I, I, my motive was to get the second hand. But I didn't, I didn't think this. It wasn't planned. So push... Fast story come to get it there to the point. Finally, we're sitting up there, and it was in the winter. He had taken the quad out. There was two other uh, people up there were to work on the cabin because we had some heavy lifting to do that day. And um, he had left his little bag of that new, I mean, this was many years ago, but when, what I, is it called chronic now? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what he called it. It's chronic. I had I used to buy the ten dollar bags, and once in a while we'd get the uh, Maui Wowie and stuff like that for two hundred fifty dollars a lid. Yeah. But I used to buy ten dollars Mexican weed, ten dollars a lid. Okay. Anyway, point being is a little little bag, nice and green, no seeds, no stems, so it wasn't gonna pop. Um, I used to have a lot of poppers, <laughs> and uh, a little pipe right there, a little uh, um, lighter, and uh, man, I woke up. He was gone, nobody in the cabin. I packed that thing like I hadn't skipped a beat, just like, wow. you, I mean, packed that thing down, went over, opened the window of the kitchen, uh, toked it up. <laughs> Hit me at first, and, I, and then I got it down. Hmm. I, kept, I hit it about four more times. And then it rolled in, I went, whoa, this is good shit. I got stoned. I uh, very much enjoyed it, by the way. <laughs> and then I tried to hide it from the rest of them, but mm -hmm. I couldn't because I just broke out laughing and had the munchies. Mm -hmm. The next day rolled in. The guilt and the shame was tremendous. And I called my sponsor, John. I said, John, I slipped. 
He said, Kelly, what happened? And I told him. He said, you didn't drink alcohol, did you? I said, no. Uh, he said, you didn't slip. And that just wasn't working. And he's an old timer, and, that, and I'm not saying he was wrong or right. It wasn't working for me. And I met with a buddy of mine that's a, a biker in the program. Uh, came from one of the rougher riders, but now he's with a, a rider, um, a, a Harley group. And I met with him. Joseph is his name. And I met with Joseph at a coffee shop, and I told Joseph what had happened. He said, Kelly, I was always a drinker. Didn't smoke any of that dope stuff. But he says, drugs, drugs, drug, buddy. Hmm. And uh, he said, I think you know what to do. So I went to a meeting, and I had to confess what I did, and I broke down. I couldn't keep talking. So that was my first. So that's why I say I wanted to explain. The other time, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I had a period in Las Vegas. And uh, when I was there, I had hurt myself very, very bad. And I was prescribed Oxycontins. Now, Oxycontins, uh, if you don't know, wow, nice drug in pill form. Um, and I, it, they make me, some people feel funny. I like the way they make me feel. So I'm supposed to take one every five to six hours, I think, for the pain. And don't drink alcohol. That wasn't a problem. I wasn't drinking. So I got the one to five to six hours. But one of the things I noticed is my wife kept in her purse. And the minute I got him, I got that one down. I thought, I'm in a little more pain than I think. Not really. I grabbed another one out of her purse because it was in the back seat with me. I was in the back seat and my sister-in-law was in the front. I put it, dropped another one. And then I noticed another thing about the Oxycontins, guys, is is that uh, CVS Pharmacy, not no, CVS is a very good pharmacy. I'm not, and I'm not saying that you should use them. No commercial here, but CVS Pharmacy puts out a vitamin C tablet, thousand milligrams. If you look at that thousand milligram vitamin C tablet, it looks very similar to this Oxycontin pill that I was prescribed in size, weight, and gram. Okay, so I figured if I take the Oxycontins out and I replace it with vitamin C, she'll never know what I'm doing. So I had a stint in Las Vegas where I'm dropping oh, three, four Oxycontins every four hours. And I was going to meetings. And we used to, in Las Vegas, there was a meeting called Cartel, and we used to have guys in there say, this is for the guy that's sitting over there in the corner with a pill in his pocket, and he's not going to tell anybody. And I was the guy in the, with the pill in his pocket and wasn't going to tell anybody. And as I was walking out of the meeting, the poor guy's cornered me and said, Kelly, look at your eyeballs, buddy. You are stoned or high or something. Mm -hmm. And I had to I had to come down and, and I there was another slip for me. So here here's my deal is I can't claim continuous maybe sobriety. One of the things that I believe because I I believe that I didn't lose everything that I had learned. It did set me back, it didn't feel good, it was painful, but I, I wanted to qualify that I don't maybe have continuous sobriety. I wish, and, and that's okay. It's not a badge of honor for me. It used to be. Yeah, so that was it. Thank you. Kelly, thank you. Thank you for sharing all of that. <clears throat> and your honesty, of course. Um, one thing I gotta ask though is, how's your relationship with the kids and do they remember um, April 19th? So my oldest son, Colin, yes, and um, I've, I've witnessed a couple of times where somebody's put a wine glass in front of me um, and uh, started to pour champagne or wine into function, and I've looked over at his face even in an older, uh, he's, he's a full-grown adult, and his face goes white, white ghostly white. Hmm. I say, don't worry, Colin, it's okay. I'm not going to do it. So I see that, but he he's still with me, and I love him to death. And then my daughter, Marin, um, still remembers. And I, she's in some counseling and stuff still today, Think I think partly due to that. I have one son that's totally estranged that wants nothing to do with me, and the last words that I received from him is, I am uh, not effing like you, and I never will be, and I don't want anything to do with you. And uh, he he was born when I was just about to get sober and when I was going through my sobriety. And I, I, I think he's one of us. I, I can't diagnose him, can I? But uh, he felt close. He fell very close to the tree, and, and I wish he was still in my life. I have two wonderful stepchildren. I, I will say this. Um, 
two things that happened to me. I was not maybe the best stepdad. It's much harder. It's much hard. It's it's a very big responsibility for anybody, and I I applaud any a father that can be a good stepdad, um, because it takes it requires a lot, and you have to be very loving and kind and tolerant, which we're taught in the program. But one of the things that I've uh, I have with those people, my stepson today was has has introduced me before as dad, which is a, a tremendous honor, uh, and I have a daughter. Uh, today that thinks of me as her dad too so yeah well I think we'll wrap it up yeah thank you so much for sharing your story thanks for asking me guys you know your experience strength and hope what a journey it's been for you well I was also also told don't give up before the miracle because the miracle will happen I promise and I'm I I sit here today I witnessed it I I know it can happen And I'm not going to use a stupid thing that if it can happen to me, it can happen for you. I just, I know it can happen because I never thought it was possible for me. Thank you for checking out the show. Remember, you can help support the show at recoveryedgepodcast.com with a donation or Venmo us at Recovery Edge. We appreciate all your support in helping us grow the show. Please share the podcast with your friends through your favorite podcast app. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. We also have a new YouTube channel, which you can find in our show notes. Please give us a like or a review wherever you listen to the show. If you would like to share your own experience, strength, and hope on the show, contact us at recoveryedgepodcast.com and use the chat feature or contact link. We appreciate your support, and we'll see you next time.